Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. Z is for Ziggy Stardust, the man, the myth, and of course, the album. Right, okay, so <laughs> something really <laughs> weird has just happened. Um, so, um, uh, in all honesty, so we've just recorded Young Americans, mm. and we've recorded a section uh, about Zoe Bowie, Duncan. Mm. And so, uh, in the interim, between that and starting this, I just went to my phone just to set the timer to see where we're up to, and there was one text on my phone, and it was from Woody Woodmansey. He said, how's it going, mate? Enjoying the sun or stuck in the studio? <laughs> Whoa. Uh, hey. so, just bizarre. So I've just replied to him, hello, mate. Um, God, that is weird. And Gilly, Rob and I in the studio recording the last podcast. Ziggy, your ears must be burning. <laughs> so what can I say? That oh. is, It's written in the stars. It's almost like a blessing, isn't it? Well, I'm going to take it as a blessing. I'm going to take it as a blessing too, mate. But uh, quite quite incredible, that. Okay. Um, so um, we'll dedicate this to Woody in that yeah. case. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Ziggy Stardust, the character, will get right into this. This, is, this might be a long episode, mm. uh, I expect. But, of course, it was my in to David Bowie yeah. via Starman. Mm. Okay, and it was... Uh, We've covered all of that, you know, it changed my life, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was interviewing Mick Rossi from Slaughter and the Dogs for Cheap Things not so long ago. Yeah. And he said what has become known as something of a cliche, which is that I saw David Bowie on top of the pops. And when he pointed at the camera, he was pointing at me, mm. it, which has turned into just such a cliche. But yeah. I, we all know that he wasn't. But no. he was, you know, he was, doing, he, was, he was in show business and he was working the room and he was working the cameras. But it just felt like he was connecting with people. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah. And, you know, the funniest thing was obviously um, the liftoff with Aisha moment changed my life, and, and Top of the Pops was a few weeks later. Uh, but then you got to look at... Um, you got to look at... That was Woody replying. Um, <laughs> turn your phone off. I will turn my phone off. Sorry, Bobbin. Um But, um, yeah, so, you know, I saw Bowie on there, liftoff with Aisha and Top of the Pops, wearing that suit, and then I went to the V&A mm. exhibition three times, and I saw the suit, and then I, I saw that plaque with my, my line on it about the performance particularly on top of the yeah. box, just lighting the touch paper for millions of kids across the UK. So you didn't know that was going to be there, did you? That I was that a surprise. I didn't have yeah. a clue, mate. In fact, you know, now that I've stripped it all down, I would absolutely love that. I would love that little plaque with my name on it yeah. just because it meant so much to me. And so Starman, which was my in and so many people's in for David Bowie, uh, was obviously uh, just written at the behest of the record company because mm. they didn't think there was a single on there. But the great thing is about Ziggy Stardust is that it, it did, it drew in the 11-year-old me and lots of other people my age. And the great thing is that he just finished Hunky Dory, mm. okay, which was a, a real kind of serious singer-songwriter album. Mm. Magnificent. You know, you look at yeah. Boulay Brothers, Quicksand and Life on Mars. These are really mature, really brilliantly delivered, brilliantly produced, brilliantly arranged tunes. Yeah. Took a lot of thought, you know, and, and then he will have had an audience for a few years, Bowie. I know people who love David Bowie, but most of them are a little bit older than me. And they were just uh, really, really mad on Hunky Dory. Yeah. You know, this is going retrospectively. And Space Oddity. These different albums. And then, of course, all of a sudden, he delivers Ziggy Stardust. Okay, that's very different to Hunky Dory. Okay, there's a load of toddlers getting into him now. Mm. So I think, you know, it's often the case, isn't it, with bands? I know the same thing happened to Mott the Hoople. Yes. But when course. somebody has a hit, 
all of those students, all of those who were there at the beginning, they feel like their their artist has been kind of robbed from them. Yeah, well, this is one of the great things about loving a band. Isn't it? It's like a rite of passage, isn't it? They're, you feel like you're part of this exclusive club, and they're yours. And as soon as the public, the rest of the larger public, mainstream public, touches it, it that kind of little bubble is gone. You can imagine it happening with Bowie. I mean, he did have a following. It wasn't a massive following, but he certainly had a cult audience out there, didn't he? And he could have been, like, as you say, after Hunky Dory, he must have realised that was a masterpiece. He could have easily become, you know, the next, like, Clifford T. Ward or something yeah. if he'd been, a, his, you know, carried on in that vein. Yeah. And so, obviously, I mean, none of the people who were following Bowie up to that point, even though he'd been changing left, right and centre from the first album to Space Oddity to The Man Who Sold The World to Hunky Dory, mm. they're all four radically different yeah. albums. So maybe... In the more astute ones could have seen a change coming, mm. but they couldn't have seen him becoming a teeny idol. No, not which at all. is you know in in essence what he was. I was I wasn't even a teenager. I was eleven years old. Yeah, yeah. And so a year after um, Starman hit top of the pops, he was doing you know uh, he was doing the Hammersmith Odeon. And if you look at the footage from the film, the front is just full mainly predominantly of girls. Mm. But there is this sexual awakening. Mm. This kind of like new uh, Messiah has arrived. You know, which is obviously what Bowie created Ziggy for. Yeah. But it works so brilliantly. You can imagine some of the old school at the back think, bloody hell, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, because it had already, we'd had Beatlemania, yeah. we'd had T-Rextasy, and then it was Bowie sweeping the nation. And of course, if you look at it, the next one to come along was Rollermania, mm. which is a completely different beast altogether. Yeah. Um, but so, uh, David Bowie, uh, to deliver Ziggy Stardust at that point in time was an absolute masterstroke, wasn't it? Well, it was also that idea outside of them. That was a brilliant thing about it but we'd always been an outsider but this was you know a deliberate outsider character wasn't it that as you say connected with a certain kind of underground audience that was going on in in the culture at the time okay so as we know and um, david finished um hunky dory two weeks later he went into trident to start work on ziggy stardust yeah and um I, and i went to trident with jason quite recently just to stand outside and do a film piece actually for cheap things the, the bowie members club that we run mm. and and it was just incredible to think of the activity going on within there and also the difference between the two albums that were being done in the space of a few months of each other yeah. and, you know and with a, a tiny gap in between yeah the other interesting kind of backstory to this and you showed me this paper originally in one of the music papers must have been in late 71 there's a tiny tiny little piece in the news section saying that mickey most had advised david bowie to make a uh, well to invent a character make a concept album do this uh, do something a bit different yeah well i mean bowie was a, a big fan of the um pretty things wasn't he yeah you know and uh, sf sorrow was a uh, a concept album wasn't yes, it you course. know so i mean it wouldn't have been too far off his radar and uh, we'll get to the bottom of it as well because Ziggy isn't really a concept album it isn't at all but it's it's often taken as being one and and also if you look at Bowie's love of theatrics and theatre it was an obvious move to create this character wasn't it yeah of course he'd never done it to that point I mean he'd done the mime with uh, with Lindsay Kemp Mm. which obviously was character based uh, but everything else he'd done it was just his own different persona taking on a different guise and so he was you know he was the Anthony Newley on the first album he was Bob Dylan on simplifying it Bob Dylan on Space Oddity or David Bowie and then we don't know quite what he was and he didn't know quite no. what he was uh, but he wanted to have this uh, this crazy rock machine behind mm, him for yeah. the man who sold the world and then as you say you, you mentioned Clifford T. Ward yeah. what was he going to be after Hunky Dory? Yeah that was a thing but you know as you say it's the culmination of all these interests you can trace uh, you know Ziggy back to the Riot Squad can't you and all the makeup and the pizzazz and the proto glam stuff for sure you know you've got hype in there Kabuki theatre poetry performance art it's all in there 
Yeah, so by the end of Hunky Dory, he'd already tried to Svengali other people into stardom, hadn't he? So mm. he, he had Freddie Beretti yeah. with Arnold Corns and Dana Gillespie. And and it looks like he's, he's almost losing faith in himself and looking around for other people to cast his own kind of uh, vision on. Yeah, well, this is the thing about Ziggy. It's often been said this was his last shot. You know, he tried so many things, so many different angles. None of them had worked on a commercial level. So if Ziggy hadn't worked, I wonder what he would have ended up doing. God only knows, mate. What would we have ended up doing? We wouldn't have ended up doing 72 podcasts anyway, that's for sure. So Hunky Dory was released in the December of 1971. On the 4th of January, 71, the rehearsal started with new material. He did Hang On To Yourself and Velvet Goldmine. Obviously, he was being pushed by Angie into creating this flamboyant character. We know that. And we've given her a due. I mean, I I know she's a, a bit of a strange cat and you have spoken to her yes uh, but there is no doubt that she was massively important in the process of, of realizing ziggy yeah of course and you know there was kind of traces in that we know he'd uh, used uh, mr fish but the dress the man dress mr fish, is a lot more boho than glam wasn't it yeah, it certainly was yeah and also if you look at it uh, again well documented but ziggy is supposed to be the component parts of iggy pop vince taylor and Jimi hendrix mm. and the legendary stardust cowboy and that was great wasn't it and uh, that the legendary stardust cowboy said you know he's done so well for himself using my name you think he'd give me some money <laughs> and so, and so uh, Bowie went off and did uh, Gemini Spaceship didn't he that's right yeah. on Heathen on and, and made some money for him yeah so moving on now 8th of January now David's uh, birthday party he came down the staircase with his long locks recently shorn uh, into the Ziggy Cup this was done by Susie Fussy wasn't it yeah who'd also uh, done Angie's hair and was Bowie's mum's hairdresser the weird thing is also if you're looking at Kevin Can's book any day now there's a great shot of Bowie in between the long hair and the short hair mm. and and it's a, almost like a feather cut it's got a bit of a quiff yes but you can see his ears sticking out that's right crucially and so and it was cut by trevor boulder yeah it was now i don't know if trevor boulder just had a pair of scissors or whether he had any training whatsoever or maybe he left it halfway through and thought that looks all right i haven't a clue but it's funny you know i mean uh, and just to go off piste for a moment but my mrs trace she used to have really long hair yeah she said oh, i'm fed up with this i'm going back decades now mm. she said i'm gonna i'm gonna cut it into like a bob right and so she cut it into a bob and then she came home and then she just burst into tears. She said, this is horrible. I don't oh, like this at all. Right. And then so she couldn't go back to having dead long hair overnight. So she just had it all cut off and it was brilliant. Mm. Absolutely right. brilliant. <laughs> and so Bowie's like the same. He's obviously a, a tentative, you know, a tentative walk towards a haircut that yes. he wanted and needed. Yeah, probably hedging his bets. Hedging his bets, yeah. Short um, and long. Okay. So we know that the cut itself was inspired by a model on the cover of Vogue magazine, the Ziggy cut. Yeah, and the Ziggy suit made for him by his friend, the seamstress Sue Frost, which is the uh, suit that we were talking about before in the V&A. That's right. Uh, moving on now, 13th of January, crucially for Bowie, A Clockwork Orange, the film was released. It is, and we know he got Droogie and all that kind of stuff in there. We know he's mad on William Burroughs, but also, um, and, and, and uh, we, I don't think we have mentioned this before, but the four inner sleeve shots of Ziggy Stardust, yes. they were all supposed to be Droog-like, weren't they? That's right, yeah. We'll get to the sleeve in a bit, won't we? We will. So the 19th of January, a newly appointed sound man, Robin Mayhew, is brought into the Ziggy entourage, along with his ace PA system. Bowie had been impressed by Robin and his sound system when he appeared on the same bill as Tucky Buzzard, the band Robin was working with at the Beckenham Rugby Club. So I interviewed Robin for Cheap Things. Yeah. Uh, just so great to, to track him down. He's got his own website uh, and he's also uh, he's a man who recorded every single night of the Ziggy and Aladdin Sane mm. tours, uh, but used the same cassette every night. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which has just got to be oh. one of the, uh, the most excruciating facts uh, in oh. the whole Bowie story. Um, but also in Tucky uh, 
sponsored was Nicky Hopkins. That's right. Who Bowie also stole to play keyboards in the original Spiders. Yeah, I think it was Angie Bowie went up to Robin initially, wasn't it, to, to you know, use his services? Yeah, well, apparently what happened was that, um, yeah, Angie went up and said, my husband David, he'd like a word with you. And so he went over to Bowie and Bowie said, look, you know, your band was very loud, but you could still hear all of the words from the vocalist. You mm. couldn't hear anything I was singing tonight. What's that about? And Robin just said, well... I know what I'm doing, and that's my PA. And he went, right, well, do you want to come around the world with me? And and that was it, right yeah. through to the very end. Brilliant, fair enough. So rehearsals for the Ziggy album began at Stratford Theatre Royal in East London. Yeah, 22nd of January, David's now infamous interview with Michael Watts, the I'm Gay one, uh, put David into the spotlight. And by early February, Ziggy was completed. Uh, Starman, of course, added as a potential hit single later on. Yeah, 7th of February, David and the band are filmed for the old Grey Whistle test. And it had taken Anya Wilson, who was the GEM uh, Promotions executive, a year to persuade the old Grey Whistle test producer, Michael Appleton, to actually uh, book Bowie on the show, largely because he didn't like the look that David was then sporting, which was, well, in particular the old Mr. Fish dress. Yeah, so he didn't like that. He found that a little bit too out there. But then uh, if you look at the uh, David and you look at the spiders on the performance, a legendary performance yeah. on the old gay whistle test, yeah. that's out there. It is. The 8th of February, the first time general public will have seen Bowie's new image was on the old gay whistle test. Now legendary. The quilted suit, the red leather wrestling boots, the spiders glammed up. Yeah, so uh, on the 10th of February now, the first night of the Ziggy Tour took place at the Toby Jug Pub in Tolworth in Surrey. Start of a 45-date tour, so it was extensive. This was make or break. Absolutely, and it's where the band first wore their outlandish costumes in public and makeup, as far as I can make out. Yeah, and bearing in mind that the Ziggy album itself wasn't released for another four months, uh, you know, on the 16th of June. So, March 72, the Ziggy character was almost complete. The final part of the jigsaw came with the bright orange dyed barnet, which was inspired by another model, Daniela Palmer, who had silver hair. She was always dying, yeah. uh, dying her hair different colours, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, sure. Uh, the tour continued to snake across the UK. The rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars was by that point ready to go. Now we're not entirely sure a lot of other people will be but mm. there were just conflicting dates the 14th of April or the 28th of April as for the release date of Starman but that was the first time that anybody got to hear anything from the new David Bowie. Yeah I seem to remember doing a piece on Starman for one of the magazines I, I, I kind of wrestled with this and I decided on the 28th in the end. Right okay let's go with that then. So 15th of June now still touring the band take advantage of a cancelled show in Coventry to record Lift Off with Aisha at Granada Studios in Manchester and well well for me the rest is history 21st of June Lift Off with Aisha is aired many kids lives changed that day mine included. So the tour rumbled on. Wednesday the 15th of July, everything comes together as David and the Spiders record their legendary Top of the Pops performance. Day later, 6th of July, Top of the Pops transmitted, millions of people saw the performance and millions of lives were changed as we've talked about. Okay, so let's get to the album now, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. So as we know, Bowie started working on his fourth album, Hunky Dory, on the 8th of June 1971 at Trident Studios. RCA Records in New York heard the tapes and signed him to a three-album deal in September. Hunky Dory came out on the 17th of December to positive reviews and moderate commercial success. Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust were almost recorded back to back. Much of the material, though, for Ziggy was recorded before Hunky Dory was released. His backing band realised that most of the songs on Hunky Dory were not suitable live material, so they needed a follow up that could be toured behind. Funny enough, talking about uh, Woody just dropping us a text there, mm. uh, it was Woody who was uh, thinking particularly of things like Life on Mars. You know, if, if uh, all of the set 
was to have that kind of dynamic. Yeah. It, it would be jaw-dropping, but it wouldn't be rock and roll. Yeah, and Woody wouldn't have much to do, would he, really? No, not, not that much. Yeah. So the session started on the 8th of November 1971, with the bulk of the album recorded that month, and concluded on the 4th of February 1972. Bowie had recorded early versions of the songs Moon Age Daydream and Hang On To Yourself in February 1971 for the Arnold Corn Side Project, and had taped demos of Ziggy Stardust and Lady Stardust around that time. The November 1971 sessions produced the final versions of those four songs alongside Rock and Roll Star, later shortened to Star, as we know, Soul Love and Five Years, as well as some unreleased tracks. In 2012, co-producer Ken Scott said that 95% of the vocals on the four albums I did with Bowie as producer, they were first takes. Incredible. Yeah. Also recorded during the November sessions were five more songs. Two covers, Chuck Berry's Around and Around, retitled Round and Round, and Jacques Brel's Amsterdam, retitled Port of Amsterdam. I wonder why he went about retitling these classic tunes. I don't know. And three original tracks, Velvet Goldmine, Love It, and re-recordings of Holy Holy and The Supermen. All these songs were initially slated for the album. But we also intended All Young Dudes, Rebel Rebel and Rock and Roll With Me to be on a Ziggy Stardust musical, which was later aborted. After recording some of the new songs for radio presenter Bob Harris's Sounds of the 70s as the newly dubbed Spiders from Mars in January 72, the band returned to Trident that month to begin work on Suffragette City and Rock and Roll Suicide. RCA executive Dennis Katz had complained that the album didn't contain a single, so Bowie wrote Starman, which was completed on the 4th of February 72. It was released as a single well, either on the 14th or 28th of April that year and became a hit after, of course, appearing on Top of the Pops. The Ron Davis cover, It Ain't Easy, recorded on the 9th of July 1971 during the Hunky Dory sessions closed the first side of the album. So, should we have a look at the concept and themes here, even though we said there wasn't a deliberate concept? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, let's... OK, so the album is essentially about a bisexual alien rock star called Ziggy Stardust. So, Ziggy Stardust was not conceived as a concept album and much of the story was written after the album was recorded. So, uh, very much like Lou Reed's Berlin. Mm. We've talked about their, uh, Lou Reed's album, uh, particularly on, on Six Music. But, of course, if you look at a lot of the songs on there, like uh, Caroline Says, Stephanie Says, Oh Jim was yeah. Oh Jin. Right, okay. Lots of different uh, yeah. tunes that ended up on uh, on Berlin, which is this really amazing, but very, 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 very downbeat <laughs> Absolutely. album. Absolutely, um, it's got the thread running through it, but yeah. it, they were all crowbarred together. Yeah, it is a very loose thread, isn't it? Let's put it that yeah. way. Certainly. So the characters on Ziggy were androgynous. You've got um, Woody Woodmancy, drummer, said the clothes they'd worn had femininity and sheer outrageousness, and that the characters' looks definitely appealed to our rebellious artistic instincts. Bowie had already already developed an androgynous appearance, which was approved by the critics but received mixed reactions from audiences. His love of acting led to his total immersion in the characters he created for his music. After acting the same role over an extended period, it became impossible for him to separate Ziggy Stardust from his own off-stage character. Mm. Other members, I mean, particularly, again, just mentioning Woody, yeah. uh, said that, you know, it was a bit like a kind of, you could see that Bowie was turning into this kind of uh, aloof messiah. Yeah, he became distant, didn't he, with his own bandmates. Uh, Bowie did say that Ziggy wouldn't leave me alone for years. That was when it all started to go sour. My whole personality was affected. It became very dangerous. I really did have doubts about my sanity. 
Fearing that Ziggy would define his career, Bowie quickly developed the persona of Aladdin Sane in his subsequent album. Unlike Ziggy, Aladdin Sane was far less optimistic, instead engaging in aggressive sexual activities and heavy drugs. The character was inspired by British rock and roll singer Vince Taylor, whom David Bowie met after Taylor had a breakdown and believed himself to be a cross between a god and an alien. So we know we've told the story of David Bowie being on the floor where with uh, the other Vince Taylor disciples with Taylor, yeah. and he had a map of Britain, didn't he? Yeah. And outside Tottenham Court road uh, tube station that's right and he was telling all of these kids where the aliens were going to come that's from right. and they're all like oh, yeah. wow hanging on his every word however Taylor was only part of the blueprint for the Ziggy character other influences included the uh, cult musician legendary Stardust Cowboy as we mentioned and Kanzai Yamamoto who designed the costumes that Bowie wore during the tour an alternative theory is that, during a tour, Bowie developed the concept of Ziggy as a melding of the persona of Iggy Pop with the music of Lou Reed, producing the ultimate pop idol. A girlfriend recalled his scrawling notes on a cocktail napkin about a crazy rock star named Iggy or Ziggy, and on his return to England, he declared his intention to create a character who looks like he's landed from Mars. The Ziggy Stardust name came partly from the legendary Stardust Cowboy, and partly because Ziggy was one of the few Christian names I could find beginning with the letter Z, <laughs> thinking ahead to the podcast scenario. But um, also, uh, again, going to cheap things, yes. I interviewed Di Davis, who was Bowie's PR guy, mm. and he, he went down to Granada with David, um, and uh, and Angie was in there as well, mm. uh, and the previously mentioned Anya as well was in there. Oh yeah, um, from Gem, uh, and um, and he said that whilst we were driving back, I think the two women were asleep in the back, and uh, and already they'd been down to do Holy Holy, mm. 1971, and he was already talking to him about this weird little character that was going around in his head. Right, and that was the first time that Di had ever heard Bowie allude to what would become oh. Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, so in 1990, Bowie explained that the Ziggy part came from a tailor's shop called Ziggy's that he passed on a train. It's a bit like the Batman story, isn't it? You know, yeah. Zoe Bowie. Uh, he liked it because it had that Iggy Pop connotation, but it was a tailor's shop. And I thought, well, this whole thing is going to be about clothes. So it's my own little joke calling him Ziggy. So Ziggy Stardust was a real compilation of things. He later asserted that Ziggy Stardust was born out of a desire to move away from the denim and hippies of the 1960s. Certainly did that. Along these lines, some critics asserted that Bowie's artificial concoction of a rock star persona was a symbolic critique of the artificiality seen in the rock world at that time. The album's concept is loose and pieced together after many of the songs were already recorded. Indeed, uh, before the album's initial release, Bowie told a US interviewer, What you have there on that album when it does finally come out is a story which doesn't really take place. It's just a few little scenes from the life of a band called Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, who could feasibly be the last band on Earth. It could be within the last five years of Earth. I'm not at all sure, because I wrote it in such a way that I just dropped the numbers into the album in any order that they cropped up it depends in which state you listen to it in so you can read your own story into it yeah in the album story the earth is saved by the rock and roll messiah ziggy stardust with only five years to survive he wins the hearts of teens scares parents seduces everyone in his path and eventually dies a victim of his own fame according to bowie he takes himself up the incredible spiritual heights and is kept alive by his disciples during the song rock and roll suicide the infinites the extraterrestrials arrive and tear ziggy stardust to pieces on stage this wider interpretation of the ziggy mythology is not explicitly stated anywhere in the album but has been perpetuated over the years by fans and by Bowie himself The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes
So the music and lyrics then. For the album, Mick Ronson used an electric guitar plugged into a 100-watt Marshall amplifier and a wah-wah pedal. I've used that combination. It didn't sound anything like <laughs> Mick Ronson. Bowie played an acoustic rhythm guitar. The album begins with Five Years, which opens with a minimalist drum figure. The track contains a repeated diatonic chord progression resembling the early 50s rock and roll music. Five Years is the one for me. That's Woody's little riff, isn't it? Brilliant. It sets up the central conflict of the album, the imminent destruction of Earth. The next track, So Love, as a pop jazz orchestration. In the song, Bowie's vocals are double-tracked, which gives an effect of two people singing and suggests a band performance. Bowie also performs the alto sax on this song. Following track, Moon Age Daydream uses harmonic and melodic hooks and heavy metal-style percussion and guitar. Moon Age Daydream introduces the alien messiah who will rescue the Earth from disaster and also includes one of Mick Ronson's most brilliant guitar solos. Yeah, and uh, you know, you can almost imagine Moon Age Daydream being on The Man Who Sold The World, can't you, if yeah, you think about it? Yeah, certainly, yeah. So we have Starman, which we talked about. Then it goes on to It Ain't Easy, which is a raucous cover of Ron Davis. Its arrangement was described by Ned Raggett as a cabaret confection and a blasting rock apocalypse, characterised by quieter verses contrasting with choruses that contain overdub backing vocals and Ronson's brilliantly triumphant guitar. The track closes the first side of the album. Lady Stardust has a moderate tempo, piano accompaniment and a pop hook. The guitar and Bowie and Ronson's arrangement on Hang On To Yourself resemble the late 70s punk rock. Suffragette City, one of the greatest hits of the album, is a straight-ahead track which contains a saxophone-like section produced with an ARP 2500 synth. The last track on the album, Rock and Roll Suicide, builds upon its minimalistic acoustic guitar textures as Ziggy's desperate message struggles to enlighten his earthling audience. The arc of the album reaches its climax as the Starman belts out his final words of wisdom before perishing on stage. So almost as iconic as the record itself, probably as, actually, is the artwork and packaging. So yes. we can have a look at that now. Yes, it is mine. Well, this is yours, actually. You've given me a couple of copies. I mean, that, that's, oh, that's a great little black and white shot of Bowie tucked into the sleeve there as well. That's um, That was sent to me by Harry Goodwin, who yeah. took the photograph from Top of the Pops, actually. Yes. Um, yeah, OK. So, um, well, before we get into uh, all of this, yeah. you've been to uh, Hedden Street, and so have I. Yes. And... Oh, it didn't look like that. Now, the bottom line is, obviously, there's loads of great 70s cars in there, Cortinas and all sorts. Yeah, yeah. Um, And obviously, we know that the sign is no longer there because Mm. somebody half-inched it. And it was, oh, God, it was a while ago now that I went to a little um, gallery in London where there were various uh, Davy Bowie artefacts, like the Diamond Dogs and Elephant Man poster and all that Mm. kind of stuff. Uh, But in there was one half of, because it's a light box, Yes. In essence. Yeah, the K-West sign, yeah. Yeah, the the K-West sign. And so half of it uh, was was actually there. And there's a picture of me kind of touching it and, oh. and, and being all fanboy about it. All right. When you say half of it, so which half? Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I mean, uh, whoever pinched it, Right. Liberated it. Mm. Whichever way you want to look at it. It obviously had to be unscrewed. And at one point, one half of it fell. Oh, and right. was glued back together. Was so it? one half of it is so. <laughs> so did it crack down the middle? It's cracked all over the shop. <laughs> it's not that bad, but um, yeah, the person who did unscrew it obviously wasn't that um, au fait with the construction of light boxes, <laughs> uh, because um, yeah, he dropped half of it. Right. <laughs> 
That's pretty tough, isn't it, really? <laughs> if you really, really wanted that as the ultimate Bowie collector's item, you'd take a bit more care, wouldn't you? Or well, at least have somebody underneath with the hands outsplayed. That's it. It would have to be a little bit like <laughs> the only fills and horses. When they take Not the, the chandelier. The chandelier down, where they're stood on the other side of the room and it drops. So, I can't believe you equated that with the uh, only fills and horses, but yes. But the weird thing is, I mean, and so it doesn't, it just doesn't look right. I mean, it's hard to express how perfect the cover is. Yeah. But also, if you look at it, there's just one bloke that, uh, there with a load of cardboard boxes. He's got this clobber on mm. uh, and that great suit and yeah. he's holding a guitar. Yes, right. And uh, it just kind of looks very incongruous. It's, I don't know if it's almost in a strange way, like the man who fell to earth. It's almost like the spaceman's landed. He's found it himself in London, coincidentally with a guitar. Yeah. And it is raining. You can see that from the sheen on the pavements. And the story is, could ask Woody, mm. uh, that the rest of the spiders wouldn't go out for the photo shoot because it was raining. So originally it was supposed to be a band photograph, as I, I, you know, from the stuff I've read, I so, which so. would make it completely different. Yeah, and I mean, so you've got Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars, and it is just Ziggy Stardust, but how would that look? It probably would look better, actually, and I love it. Mm. But can you imagine if uh, you had Rono and Woody and Trevor all in their mad clobber, stood yeah. there like a little gang, and that would have looked a little bit more like uh, Clockwork Orange as well, which was part and parcel of what they were after. Yeah, definitely. Well, when I went there... Uh, so the K West sign has gone. There's a blue plaque there now, yeah. which was unveiled by Woody and Trevor and uh, Gary Kemp. That's right. Um, but when I went down there to meet Jason to do a little film piece, mm. um, Mark Holland walked past me. Oh, yes. Within seconds. Right. And he stopped outside it, and I imagine he's been there hundreds of times. That was mm. the first time I'd ever been to it. And he was just stood there for a while, and then he met somebody, and they, they had a bit of a chat, and then went the separate ways. Right. But it's obviously, uh, for him, it, it seemed to be, anyway, from where I was, yeah. just like, oh, yeah, I need to, do, I need to give you something. I'll meet you outside Ziggy. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, and, landmark. And it is iconic. But at that point in time, where Bowie is stood, just in front of that, there were a load of wheelie bins. Mm. And also um, next to it, which looks like a further office at this point in time, right yeah. on the right-hand side of the cover, yeah. is now a cafe. That's right, yeah. And it's been refurbished, mm. okay? And so there was just boardings all yeah. around it. And so it was a bit of a shame. Though I have to say, um, I did walk uh, just about, yeah, I don't know, 10 yards down mm. past it, and then took a left into a little alcove, and that's where you find a phone box. That's right. It's not the phone box. No, that was removed some time ago, then brought back and then removed, and then something else was put there. It, it was strange. One. So they took the right one out, which which is just criminal, yeah. really, and stupid. And then I think they put one of the blue phone boxes in, and then they thought, oh, well, we at least need to put a red one back in mm. there. And so they put a red one in, uh, but it was Blam who told me this. It's the one with a lot more windows in. Oh, all so, right. okay, all right. Do you know, it's not even the right phone box. So right. somebody, some some um, twerp somewhere will have a big rolling garden, and they will probably have that phone box in there with plants in it or something. Oh, and no. won't even be aware of it. They probably, you know, because they used to sell those phone boxes on, didn't they? Yeah, they, they did. You they know, did. they're kind of like artifacts of London but so, so somebody somewhere will probably have that and probably won't know what it is cool well I mean you mentioned the sort of incongruous nature of that that's the thing I love about this that's a love it's just so ordinary it's an ordinary couldn't be a more of a you know a British scene couldn't it? it's a damp night nobody around it's all looking kind of very early 70s and all a bit miserable you've got that strange you know this is the fact that K West sign which really intrigued me at the time I have no clue what that was and why was it there you I know? only knew recently it was a furrier yeah well that's it you know and there's the offices there and and there are other photos that Brian Ward took on the night with Bowie sort of posing in the doorway and then up against the wall and it's great, great shots just looking up, you know. The uh, great shots, but they would have made a crap album cover. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really crap album cover and and again, just stood in a phone box. It's like, it's it's all pr 
pretty random. It, do, it seems like, like now, for instance, if you have mm. somebody in this position, you would have meetings about it, you would have image kind of consultants, yeah. you know, you would think, right, how do we need to, um, uh, you know, portray ourselves yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And also, we have to remember, it was a black and white shot. So mm. Terry Pastor hand-tinted it as he'd done on Hunky Dory before. Yeah. You can't imagine a black and white album on such a lavish, you know, full-colour concept. And also, I only found out that we're doing the research for this a little bit earlier, that Bowie didn't, apparently, didn't realise there was going to be a back photo at all. He just thought it was going to be a plain photo with the track listing on. Right. So that photo of him in the phone box was a surprise to him when the RCA decided, well, we've got another another picture for the yeah. back. They sent over, it may, may have been a mock-up, I can't imagine that they would have printed the album without him knowing, but he was like, oh, blimey, yeah, that's yeah. great. He probably didn't say blimey. Uh, but another thing, which Blam told me, mm. uh, I'm pretty sure, uh, there is that crease in the photograph. Yes, right. And, and uh, as I remember, Blam was saying, um, probably to Terry Pasta, mm. I just love that, that it's got a crease in it, makes it look a bit old, like it's been found in the street or something. Yeah. And he went, is it? Is a crease on it. So Terry no. Pastor didn't know that. He was like, no, right. that must have happened in transit. You know, so like you got a courier on a motorbike with it bent <laughs> over his back and that's where it came from. Oh. And there's some weird little kind of scratches and stuff in the in the top left-hand corner as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that was all <laughs> not deliberate. But if it hadn't been raining, it would have been, <laughs> it's just crazy. No. It would have been a much different cover. Yeah, completely. And, and to go there, regardless of the wheelie bins, and I know that somebody went there a little bit after me and the wheelie bins had gone. I think I was right. just very unlucky. Yeah. Uh, but I still got a huge thrill from being there, right. you know. It's incredible, isn't it? Also, should mention, one of the last remaining things from this picture to survive was the streetlight. And that was only a few years ago when, it, when somebody got shut of it. God knows where it is now. Did they really? Yeah, yeah. What, did, it, did that get liberated or did the council take it down? I'm guessing that was a council thing. Right, okay. Now, uh, so let's look at the inner sleeve here. So mm. we're talking about it being slightly clockwork orange. Yeah. Uh, and they're all looking quite menacing. There's a great um, uh, series of shots, like a contact sheet of David. I've not seen one of the rest of the guys. Yeah. Uh, but he's sm smiling on one and uh, looking a little bit kind yeah, of cheeky yeah, yeah. in another. Um, but no, they all look pretty menacing on that, they which do. again does reflect the clockwork orange droogs kind of ultra-violence thing going on. Yeah, and only Trevor Bolden not looking at the camera. Yeah, he's yeah he's away with the fairy there, is, Trevor. Sure. But uh, this the actual um, this bit of artwork, it was great. It was in the V and A. Yeah, was it? Yeah, oh. and it is just four photographs stuck down with glue on a piece of paper. <laughs> but of course it is. Of course, you know. Well, Terry Pasta doing the artwork, so all that amazing, you know, uh, the the logo, David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, was all by. That kind letter of push-on letter set, as you used to do. You put yeah. letter set down and then rub it on and do it letter by letter, and that was the only way you could do it. Yeah, and, you know, you don't think about that, but, yeah, somebody just cut out four photographs of these guys and stuck them down with glue on a piece of paper, and, wow. and, and it was, as I say, in the uh, in the V&A exhibition. Ooh. Oh, just wonderful stuff. Okay, so um, let's get to it. The album cover photograph was taken by Brian Ward outside Furrier's K West at 23 Hedden Street, London, in January 1972, looking southeast towards the centre of the city. Yeah, I believe it was the 13th of January 72. Uh, Bowie said of the sign, it's such a shame that sign went, well, removed, uh, liberated, as you put it. People read so much into it. They thought K West must be some sort of code for Quest. It took on all these sorts of mythical overtones. The post office in the background, now the living room W1 bar, incidentally, was the site of London's first nightclub, the Cave of the Golden Calf, which, which opened in 1912. That is amazing. And I've also stayed, <laughs> this is how iconic it is, I've also stayed in a pretty flash hotel in London called K West. Have you? Yeah. Oh, I know that, yeah, I know that hotel. Yeah, Strange, yeah. yeah. As part of street renovations, in April 1997, a red K-series phone box was returned to the street, replacing the modern blue phone box, which in turn had replaced the original phone box featured on the rear cover, uh. as mentioned. 
uh, of the album's packaging in general. Bowie said the idea was to hit a look somewhere between the Malcolm McDowell thing with the one mascarad eyelash and insects. It was the ear of Wild Boys by William Burroughs. It was a cross between that and Clockwork Orange that really started to put together the shape and the look of what Ziggy and the Spiders were going to become. Everything had to be infinitely symbolic. In March 2012, the Crown Estate, which owns Regent Street and Heddon Street, installed a commemorative brown plaque at number 23 in the same place as the K West sign on the cover photo. The unveiling was attended by original band members Woody Woodmansey and Trevor Boulder, was unveiled by Gary Kemp. The plaque was the first to be installed by the Crown Estate and is one of the few plaques in the country devoted to fictional characters. So, uh, according to Brian Ward, Bowie had phoned him requesting a shooting location that resembled a Brooklyn alley scene where he could appear alone like an alien being. Uh, Ward said he was playing on this Man from Mars thing. He wanted to come over like a real stranger, like a science fiction movie. And his, he did say that in all, he took 54 photographs uh, taken on Haddon Street with all different angles. So wow. there's a load of stuff out there. And Bowie, that Les Paul guitar that Bowie's got over his shoulder uh, belonged to Mark Pritchard, his uh, old guitarist. All right, so moving on to the release of the album and the promotion. Uh, Bowie's Ziggy Stardust Spiders from Mars album released on the 16th of June 1972 in the UK. Ziggy Stardust entered the top 10 in its second week on the UK album chart. In its first week, the album sold 8,000 copies in Britain. After dropping down the chart in late 72, the album began climbing the chart again. By the end of 1972, the album had sold 95,968 units in Britain. That's very precise. It is. It peaked at number five on the chart in February 73. In the US, the album peaked at number 75 on the Billboard charts in April 73. It was eventually certified platinum and gold in the UK and US, respectively. And the first single from the album, Starman, got to number 10 in Britain, whilst only getting to number 65 in the States. The album returned to the UK chart on the 31st of January 1981, amid the new romantic era that Bowie helped inspire. It was followed by a reissue of Aladdin Sane, which spent the first of 24 weeks on the chart in March 82. After Bowie's death from cancer on the 10th of January 2016, the album reached a new peak of 21 in the US Billboard 200. It has sold an estimated 7.5 million copies worldwide, making it Bowie's second best-selling album. Okay, so the tour itself, I mean, it was mammoth. It lasted 18 months, passed through the United States and Canada. It then continued to Japan to promote his Aladdin Sane album, and Bowie announced the end of the tour, as we know, on the 3rd of July 1973 at the infamous Hammersmith Apollo gig. It had more than 170 gigs in total. So, notably, on the 20th of October 1972, Bowie performed a show in Santa Monica recorded for radio broadcast. The bootleg recording of the performance circulated among fans and came to represent the beginning of Zoe's long love affair with America. It was officially issued in 2008 as Live Santa Monica 72. So that is Robin Mayhew's mix. Yes, that's right. Robin did the mix for that. Yeah, yeah. So we should have a look at the uh, critical reception now. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Upon release, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars received highly favourable reviews by music critics. James Johnson of the New Musical Express said the album has a bit more pessimism than on the previous releases and called the album's songs fine. Mm. (laughs) Michael Watts of Melody Maker published that while Ziggy Stardust had no well-defined storyline, correct, it had odd songs and references to the business of being a pop star that overall add up to a strong sense of biographical drama. That's fair enough. In Rolling Stone, writer Richard Cromlin gave the album a favourable review of at least a 99. That's presuming it's out of 100. But while Cromlin thought it was good, he felt that the record in its style might not be of lasting interest. We should all say a brief prayer that his fortunes are not made to rise and fall with the fate of the drag rock syndrome, he wrote. Circus wrote that the album is from start to finish of dazzling intensity and mad design and called it a stunning work of genius. The album was placed at the top of Cream's end of year list. 
Okay, I mean, if, if we were to seriously talk about the influence of Ziggy Stardust, yeah. we would be here for another hour, wouldn't yeah, we? Of course. Uh, but this is uh, yeah, just uh, some research from somewhere. The concept of Ziggy Stardust was revisited by Bowie himself in his later album, Aladdin Sane, which topped the UK chart. It was his first number one album. Described by Bowie as Ziggy Goes to America, it contains songs he wrote while travelling to and across the US during the earlier part of the Ziggy tour. Yeah, of course. So let's have a look at the track list, shall we? As we know, co-produced by Bowie and Ken Scott. Uh, side one begins with five years followed by soul love moon age daydream starman then you got the ron davis cover it ain't easy side two lady stardust star hang on to yourself ziggy stardust suffragette city and rock and roll suicide so it's all there uh, to be had, hasn't it? Right down to rock and roll suicide at the end. And so, mm. if you if you're of a mind, you can get the thread and run it through the album and treat it like a concept album if you want to. Yes. Uh, but uh, I mean, yeah, it's just been such an influential album, and and so much of the uh, musicians who came after it, particularly the punk. Susie and the Banshees, yeah. Billy Idol, all of those people. And, of course, uh, it was around about this time that um, Steve Jones and Paul Cook became aware of Bowie and Nick the Gear. Yeah, that's right. So that had a different kind of influence <laughs> because maybe some of the early Sex Pistols gigs um, uh, were actually you know, fired out through Rono's amplifiers or Woody's cymbals or the microphones that they nicked or whatever it was. Yeah, from Hammersmith Odeon particularly, wasn't it, in 73? The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Okay, Bob, so, and breathe. Oh, that's it. I can't believe we're at the end. Can you? 72 episodes. And so, do you know, Bob, when we sat down to do this, we realised there were 26 letters in the alphabet, didn't we? We both realised that at the same time, I believe. We did. And we thought, well, maybe, just maybe, once we'd done the notes, maybe the half-hour episodes would stretch to 30 uh, episodes in total. I was thinking maybe 35 absolute maximum. Right, well, there you go. And, of course, when we started getting into it, uh, we approached a guy called Howard Nock. Hello, Howard. Hello, Howard. And now um, we decided we wanted to try and just get Bowie's life down in this kind of audio style in a podcast mm. and do it in a way that would never be bettered by anybody else. And at the risk of blowing our own trumpet, I really don't think that anybody else is going to come up with nigh on 40 hours of David Bowie material, mm. a series that even has a look at his driver. And so <laughs> we've gone under every nook and cranny. Sure, there are some of the musicians that we didn't uh, uh, include in the whole yeah. thing, Caboodle, but there had to be. Yeah. We would seriously be here forever. And we'll talk about an, another source of Bowie material that people might be interested in a little bit later on. Mm. Uh, but yeah, okay, we thought, right, we know how to do this. We've done A to Zs of Punk and Psych on the Six Music program. Yeah, yeah. And so we thought, right, let's do David Bowie. Mm. We both love Bowie. We both know quite a lot about him, or so we thought. Mm. And so we, we were going to get into it. And then the problem is, okay, how do we get to record it? And so, by, uh, by luck, really, I was introduced by a mate, Lee, to uh, Howard Nock. Now, mm. Howard uh, came in and did some sound work for us. He was the audio guy um, for a, uh, a programme that I did for the BBC iPlayer, actually, called All Shook Up. Yeah. And Howard, we went for a pint with him, such a brilliant fella, and also... He knows what he's doing. And so I, I approached him and said, would you mind just giving us some tips about it? And he went, do you know what? It's not quite as easy as you think, mm. and you will need to buy quite a bit of clobber. Why don't you just come and do it at my studio? 
Well, I remember that first day, Bob, don't you? <laughs> I do, absolutely. Just not knowing what to expect. So was, there was, a, well, me and you uh, sat around a, a small table in the middle of the room and then Howard with his back to us with his big console of equipment and just not knowing where we, we were going with this thing. Obviously, we tried to, as we've done all along, we tried to kind of divvy it up a little bit or have a, it'd certainly have a structure. It's not just us two waffling on, though it must seem like that a lot of the time. And then just see where, where it went. And it was a bit nervy. And I think you can tell, certainly listening to the first, definitely the first two, maybe the first three, that we're still trying to get there. You know, we're trying to, still trying to find an identity for this thing. That's dead right, Bob. Yeah, we were a bit shaky with it, weren't we? And it's funny because it's, uh, it's an old recording ploy mm. if you're doing a series. If you're doing something like this, you should record the fourth or fifth one first mm. because if you're nervous, then you get that out of the way, yeah. then the first four will be good and then if you've got a slightly ropey fifth one, people won't mind because they know already that you're in. So if there's anybody out there who, who ditched us after A, part one, <laughs> then they can only apologise because we didn't really follow the, uh, the, the rules that we'd been aware of before that. No. But yeah, and we went to Howard's house. And so the Archie is Pooch, R.I.P. Oh, yeah. And Joe is Mrs. Knocking About. And we went down there and we just threw caution to the wind and we recorded the first few episodes. But then Howard being Howard mm. and being in demand, mm. they took him to Russia, not to the Gulag archipelago no. to work down the salt mines, but to cover the World Cup for yeah. the, the BBC. And so he showed us how, what gear we needed to buy and he set up the templates for it. Mm. And so we are so grateful to Howard for doing all of that and for all of the uh, endless edits that it oh. had to do. I mean, people might think we're just seasoned, incredible broadcast, but we do get things wrong occasionally. Hard to believe, I know, but without Howard, it could never have happened. Not a chance. Absolutely. So we salute you, Howard. And then, so we were, I don't know, maybe uh, the letter H, something like that. Mm. And I started to think, right, I'm pretty proud of this. I think that we're doing a good job here. So we need to try and advertise it a bit more. And so I just put on Twitter, is there anybody out there who would mind doing an advert for us? Some people call them GIFs. Mm. I think they're called GIFs, actually, which is a guy who invented it said they're called GIFs. So I have to take his word for it. But anyway, um, and within minutes... Jason Reed popped up and said, do you mean something like this? And it was just a quickly unfolding A to Z. And I was like, yeah, that's amazing. Would you be kind enough to do one for us just so that we can tweet it, me and you and Howard? And he went, yeah, of course I will. I'll do one every every episode if you want. Uh. I was like... What? It just transpires that he is um, a, a genius. He is a genius, and that was a godsend you, you find in him. That was just remarkable. And so uh, all of the trails, which just make me chuckle from yeah. start to finish, uh, have been there. And it's just been great to get to know Howard and Jason. And the four of us now, we've got this other thing going again. Talk about it later. Uh, but yeah, lifelong mates. And so that is something else that has come out of this, which is yeah. really, really special. So we're very, very lucky. And there is a role of honour, uh, apart from uh, Howard and Jason, and of course, so we're going to start with our families, aren't we? Because <laughs> we've put them through quite a bit, haven't we, really? We've put uh, ourselves through a lot and we've put them, uh, you know, just by uh, accident, really. But yeah. th- th- there is an awful lot of work that has gone into these. And so we would be disappearing uh, uh, weekends and all sorts, particularly yeah. Howard and Jason, again, working Sundays. Well, to the point where, and I have to say, I probably can tell you this now, uh, at one point, Jane, my missus, did say, oh, you see more of Mark than you do of me. Well, you but, do. Well, that's probably true. Does she know we're going on holiday <laughs> together this I'm year? I have told her that, yeah. Right, don't bother. Okay, um, but uh, yeah, and so, and well, I mean, if you look at it, was it the letter S that ended up in 10 parts? Oh, yeah, it was. But I mean, we found out very, very early on in this process this was going to be a mammoth undertaking, didn't we? Because you can't just do it half cocks. You have to, if you're going to undertake the A to Z of Bowie, you've got to do it properly. 
And not only that, we would get a structure, but of course we've got a lot of things to throw in there and a lot mm. of winging it and stuff. And yeah. so we, we would sit down with some notes and you think, right, that's going to be half an hour or that's going to be 25 minutes. And 40 minutes later, well, you realise that you've just been gassing on, which is the beauty of it. Yeah. I, I understand that. But um, yeah, when S ended up in 10 parts, we just absolutely could not believe it. So uh, that is why it's ended up being quite so mammoth, this yes. actual undertaking. But who else do we need to thank? Well, we need to thank the people who we... Um, plundered their hard work to help us get here. So Kevin can. Yeah, so his book Any Day Now was just essential. That is the Bible. Yeah, and also <laughs> I would like to mention at this point in time, I know that um, Kevin can uh, did work with uh, Ken Pitt uh, to get a lot of the information yeah. for that. But also talking to John Cambridge, mm. the brilliant, brilliant, lovely man John Cambridge, um, uh, he told me that he'd been writing everything down since he was 15 in a book about all the gigs that he'd done. Mm. And I know that Kevin went to see John and took a lot of John's information as well for Any Day Now. So it's also John Cambridge was okay. uh, was responsible for a lot of the material that went into that book. All so right. again, John Cambridge as well. We need to thank Woody Woodmansey for he's always plugging us on Twitter, yeah, and Instagram. Yeah, really, really great fella. And you know, I am thrilled to say that. Well, you know, we got a text of him a bit ago, but just thrilled to say that I've got to know the man now, and he's Lovely. one of my favourite people that I've ever met. And that isn't just because he's in the spiders and and holy holy. It's because he's one of the most sweet and infectious people I've ever met in my life. He's just something yeah, else. he is wonderful. We also need to thank, of course, Nicholas Pegg for writing the complete David Bowie, without which we really would have been lost. Yeah, we definitely would. We need to thank Blam, Mark Adams from DavidBowie.com. He's always been there. If we need uh, to straighten anything out, yeah. you know, he's helped us along, and uh, and he's just been a, a firm friend for, uh, for forever and a day, really. Top fella. Of course, we need to thank the author, David Buckley, for writing Strange Fascination, another essential Bowie tome. Yeah, we've got uh, Paul Kinder, uh, David Bowie, Wonderworld, which is a just a, it's been that again has been going forever and a yeah, day, you know. Yeah. And, and Paul Kinder is a massive Bowie fan, and what he doesn't know, I mean, you know, if you look at Mark Adams and Nicholas Pegg and Kevin Can and Paul Kinder, they won't have learnt very much from this podcast. You know, they might have learnt some bits, they might mm. have just been uh, reminded of things that they've forgotten. But these people know so much about Bowie. I mean, there, there were there were aspects of Bowie's career that we didn't have a clue about, like no. you know, for instance, uh, the uh, the Christopher Lee possible. Yeah, album. that was completely new for me, and all. Also, there have been some really, really great funny parts, haven't there? Uh, particularly, now, Howard, you're going to have to get your beeper ready for this. Uh, but the uh, the section for the filming of the video for Ashes to Ashes. Oh, yes. Which is yeah. obviously one of the great videos and cost more money than any other video at that point in time. Mm. But when that bloke was walking past and uh, you had to stop the filming and the, and, and uh, was it David Mallet says to him, <laughs> yeah, yeah. do you know who this is? And he says, yes, it's some in a clown suit. And then later on, Bowie said, every now and then I just have to stop myself and think, yes, you are just a cunt in a clown suit. So that is quite possibly my favourite moment of of all of these hours that we've done. There've been loads of favourite yeah, moments, yeah. but um, but but that was that was one for me. Yeah, brilliant. We also need to thank. Well, also David Bowie Wonderworld have been plugging us constantly on social media, which has been great. Uh, David Bowie News as well. Yeah, that's right. Also, uh, Mr. Wikipedia. Oh, now uh, who? There is no Mr. Wikipedia. No, there is no Mrs. Wikipedia. No. But there are a series of people out there who have just helped build the Bowie Wikipedia. Well, it's it's a Bible. In yeah, a it way. is. And you know what? Quite often Wikipedia is wrong, mm. but it seems that pretty much everything that I've seen for uh, Bowie on Wikipedia has been bob on. Yeah. And so all of the people who've contributed to that and we plundered, we uh, yeah respect is due. Yeah, and also you know we've got to thank, of course, our audience, all you people who've downloaded and listened to this thing, sat through us, hopefully been entertained by it, maybe been educated, given you a chuckle. 
whatever. We couldn't have done it without you. Of course we couldn't. Absolutely. And, uh, and well, you know, last and most certainly not least, we need to thank David Bowie because yeah. he, I can't even put into words, really, the, the way that he changed my life because it, it was at that point in time when I saw him doing Starman that I didn't think I'm going to be in a band. That mm. just was obviously just not on the cards. That, mm. anyway, obviously, it transpired that I was in the end, but it just seemed that that was just a ridiculous notion. I just realised that music was all I was really interested in and football, uh, but music much more. And, and it made me just lose interest in school. Thankfully, I wasn't academic anyway, so it's nobody's loss. And I just went off on this musical journey, which was all triggered off by David Bowie, who was the first rock star that I actually thought he's mine mm. you know him and Mark Boland and Mark Boland doing Ride White Swan but when Ziggy landed that was like oh my god I need to sit down you know um, yeah of course well you know your story you know isn't uncommon is it Bowie is the reason I listened to music in the first place simple as that right and you know I mean I was lucky enough to get to meet him on many occasions and he was everything everything that's been good that has been said about Bowie is absolutely true he was just clever he was funny, he was mischievous, and he made the uh, the greatest... Even if you look at the Beatles, he made the greatest run of albums of anybody because the Beatles mm. weren't going that long. No. So if you look from... I mean, everybody will have their own opinion, but if you look from Space Oddity right through until Scary Monsters... That that run, you can, you can keep going on. You can go to Let's Dance if you want. You can't go to Tonight and Never Let Me Down. No. But that run of albums has never been equaled by anybody else ever, in my opinion and many other people's opinions. It's a good point. It's unprecedented. I know there are people who say uh, Todd Rundgren the same during the 70s, Stevie Wonder as well to an extent, but they're not quite... Well, Todd Rundgren wasn't the big massive star that Bowie was for a start, and I think Stevie Wonder's kind of run ended was shorter. You know, but Bowie certainly he's in the spotlight. He's a mainstream star, and he's making these incredible career swerves all the time. I wrote this piece recently, and it was just a little bit of a eureka moment, Bob. But I was just driving down the road, and I was thinking, what is it about Bowie? Obviously, I love his music and the look of it, and all of that kind of stuff. And then I thought, I know what it is. It's because he was such an interesting person, right? Mm. And then if you look at an, an interested person, yeah. he's interested in the arts. He was interested in the bands coming through. He was interested in painting. He painted. You know, he was a great reader and what triggered it off was a great shot is Ronnie Spector there's Bowie and there's Iggy Pop and Iggy Pop they sat at a table in a restaurant Iggy Pop has got a knife to Bowie's throat and Bowie is pretending to look terrified on the table whilst this mischief is going on is a copy of James Joyce's Ulysses and that summed Bowie up Absolutely perfectly. It was like a eureka moment. It was like, God, that, if you, if, you, if you want to say to somebody, what is David Bowie about? You can get it all in that one photograph, really. Mm. He looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's got this mischief and he's got the, the culture uh, with him, you know? And if you look at his peers, if you look, no offence to anybody here, but, and you know there's going to be some offence at that Go point. Go on. But Mick Jagger is not that interesting, you know? No. Mick, Mick Jagger didn't seem to be culturally voracious, did he? What interesting things does he do? He'd been in films and stuff, and they mm. weren't particularly good. But, you know, if you look at Rod Stewart, I really don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so at you all. Know, Elton John buys art, but, <laughs> you know, when you've got £500 million, you might as well spend it on something. Yeah. Again, I don't wish, wish to do any disservice to these people, but none of them just seemed, to me, as interesting. And even Bob Dylan. Now, here's the funny thing. Mm. Bob Dylan 
he's seen to be this, you know, really, really, you know, interesting character. He's only interesting because he doesn't say anything. So yeah. nobody knows what's going on in Bob Dylan's mind. It's like, he's, he's almost like he's interesting because he doesn't say anything. Yeah, it's the enigma, isn't it, that you're drawn to. And the really interesting stuff that he was doing, I'm not saying nothing beyond the 60s was interesting, but when he first came through and he was, you know, supposed to be seen as like the great prophet of the generation, that was sort of inspired by a lot of other people. Not yeah, that well, Bowie he, wasn't inspired, but, you know, with Pete Seeger was doing all that stuff. Woody Guthrie, completely. obviously. And then when people turn to Bob Dylan and say, we, we need guidance for this political, you know, crisis that we're going through uh, towards the end of the 60s, he went, no, look at me. I'm just an artist. I'm just a performer. Yeah, he was off. He, he stepped back. a bit like Bruce Forsyth then for some reason. <laughs> Incredible. I mean, he couldn't even say the same thing about Bruce Forsyth, could you? He's probably a little bit interesting, but anyway. Well. But you've got to look at Bowie's stature. That's the thing, isn't it? Plenty of interesting people in the music business. Brian Eno, you know, David Byrne, lots of people, but not of that stature. Doing yeah. it at that level. Yeah. You know, so you've got to compare him to the likes of Dylan, as you say, Mick Jagger, people like that. And Bowie's biggest disappointment in himself was when he lost that sense of adventure when he did, when he when he followed the dollar yeah. uh, after Let's Dance, which was, you know, an impeccable, brilliant album and a wonderful tour. But the next two albums, as we've documented, saw Bowie thinking, I'm going to I'm going to take the money and run now. And, 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 and that... After that, it was such a dismal failure, and he felt so bad about it. That's when he started thinking about doing, you know, Black Tie, White Noise, but yeah. also really weird stuff like the Outside album and Heathen. Earthling too. Yeah, just, just not just sticking the middle finger up and saying, look, I am David Bowie, I will do what I like, and if the critics don't like it, swivel. Well, it was like, like that thing that Reeves Gabrell said, wasn't it? You know, he had a choice at one point, didn't he, in the 80s. He could have followed the Rod Stewart path and done the Vegas showbiz years, or he could have, like, challenged himself again. And there was only one way that Bowie he was going to go in all reality. So, uh, and, and with all that in mind, and also just, you know, you can hear Bob and I talking and enthusing about David Bowie. Well, you know, if you're going to miss a podcast and if you're remotely interested, there is a thing called Cheap Things. Now, it's a Bowie members club. Uh, you can find it at patreon.com forward slash cheap things. It's myself, Rob, Howard, and Jason, we're all involved in it, and we do lots of different things on there. We're going to be doing some similar things to this, like podcasts that aren't going to be made available anywhere else, but we're going to be looking at the uh, the songs of David Bowie. Yeah, they thought that's where we're going to go next. Yeah, it's just, just a random, no great structure to it. We're going to choose a song and we'll just rattle through it. Yeah, and have a look at where it came from yeah. and, and its influence and that kind of stuff. But also on there, we go all over. The, like I mentioned previously, we went to uh, Trident to have a look at the uh, studios. We went to the Marquee, mm. and uh, yeah, lots of different places. Uh, we, it's called Bowie Haunt went to the Manchester Apollo and recreated Bowie and Iggy That's uh, right. from 1977 That's right. and his guitar tutorials and there's loads of interviews on there with lots of great people we've had Ian Hunter yeah. and with Woody Woodmansey Mike Garson uh, previously mentioned John Cambridge yeah George Underwood's on there all, all four cheap things so you won't hear them anywhere else Pete That's Wiley's right. on there Michael uh, Rota from uh, Noy as well Dana Gillespie's on there yeah. Robin Mayhew who we mentioned uh, did yeah. uh, all of the sound on the Ziggy and Aladdin saying tours. Mick Rossi of Slaughter and the Dogs. He got to know Mick Ronson. Yeah, brilliant. That's a brilliant story. Phil Lancaster from the Lower Third. Di Davis, yeah. the PR guy again. So, um, yeah, if you're interested in Bowie and you're interested in what Rob and I have got to say about him, uh, and, uh, and indeed Howard and um, Jace, then, yeah, that's the place to go. Uh, but we've got to say bye, haven't we, Bob? We have, haven't we? So we should say it. Love, Love on ya. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, 
You can, and here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things, and for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why, so now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer, actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. Greetings, Earthlings. This is Jason from the A to Z of David Bowie team. And I'm here to tell you that we're currently looking at releasing the entire podcast series in a deluxe package. If you'd like to be kept informed of our plans, then join our mailing list by emailing bowiecheapthings at gmail.com. Or joining our members club, patreon.com forward slash cheap things. And you can also visit our website, bowiecheapthings.com. Over and out. Bowie.